Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched The Great Escape. Allied prisoners of war plan for several hundred of their number to escape from a German camp during World War II. It's a prison break. Prison break. You haven't seen war movies. That's a that's a common trope that we've known here. Yeah, I don't watch war movies very often. You do watch prison break movies, though. I love a prison break movie. So why hadn't you seen this? Uh, I think it's the age that it is. What, that it's nearly 60 years old? Yeah, I think that has something to do with it. Nah, it's still great. What a good movie. What a good flick. Oh, yeah, it was good. There's nothing... Look, we just got done watching like one of the most beautiful, epic, sweeping films ever made. Mm-hmm. This is not that. But what this is, is just solid, good storytelling. Oh, agreed. There's nothing fancy or unique or wild about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we got done talking about Stalag 17. Stalag 17 even has a little bit more flair than this movie at times. Mm-hmm. But this is just... We're going to go through this bit by bit, methodical, and we're going to ratchet up the tension as high as we can for every single one of these dates. Mm-hmm. And that's why it still holds up as a great movie. Yep. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. And I, I can see other films that I've watched. Of, you know, this is, the, this is the one that came before. Um, so it's one of those films. And I always like seeing those. And three hours long. Don't feel like it. This one felt like it a little bit, but it it was more entertaining than some of the other things that we've seen that have definitely been too long. I appreciate that they they have a lot of story to tell. They want to try and tell as much of it as they can. Mm-hmm. So they're not gonna they're they're not gonna skimp on the time. You you could probably you could probably do with a few less characters. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it's a little cast heavy at times. But on the other hand, like, this is very much a real story. When we talk about the history here, if anything, they're underselling what a big mm-hmm. deal this was. Yeah. And what an undertaking this was. And again, we it, it's kind of that thing with Heat where we're like, actually, it would be nice to have more and then extend it out. So you actually had more time with the specific characters. Mm-hmm. Again, so many of these movies come back to... If you could give me a mini series and give me the perspective of each of these characters in an episode, what a fantastic thing that would be to watch. Seriously. Right? Like each one of these dudes gets their own moment and we see the escape from their specific point of view. Mm-hmm. We weave that in. That would be a, a really cool way to do this story. But it's also it's a pretty timeless story. Guys are locked up. All of them are experts at breaking out and they're going to break out. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's it. It's not it's not trying too hard at all. No. And I appreciate that. You don't need it to try hard. All right, well the budget for this film was 3.8 million dollars. That's about 37 million dollars in today's money. It went wildly over budget for what it was intended to do. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. But it grossed $11,700,000, which is about $113 million. So it did just fine. Yeah, and now it's like a classic. So, yeah. I don't know that anybody thought it would go this well. Here's the one thing about this movie. It is a little odd, especially for an audience used to war movies. Mm -hmm. This is not your regular war movie. Because very little of it involves 
war. True. Even Stalag 17 had a lot more references to what was going on in like 1944 and stuff. Mm -hmm. This one, you could take the basic elements of the story, put it in any prisoner of war camp and you'd get the same results. Yeah, because it's not about the war. It's about the escaping. And to be fair, like the the actual story does involve all of the the Nazis and stuff, but mm-hmm. I do feel like they boiled it down to the most basic elements of here's the timeline of what happened and what they did, mix and match, but they didn't dive into all the different political and social elements of what was going on and how it would affect the war itself. Yeah. They just kind of mention it and then move on. And part of that is because they're like, we got a whole lot of story to tell here. We don't have time to dive into all of those deeper meanings. Mm -hmm. They don't. They have no time to deal with that. So it's really done by little drips and drabs here and there. Let's talk about our writing. We have three named writers and apparently a ton of uncredited writing for which I have no names. Okay. We start with Paul Brickhill, who wrote the book. He wrote a number of different books based on real stories of the war. He was the pilot of a British Spitfire shot down over Tunisia in March 1943, and he was transported to a, a Stalag camp in Poland. And we'll, we'll talk a, a lot more about the details of that in our history section. But he's basing this off of his own experience being in a prisoner of war camp. He also wrote a book called The Dam Busters and wrote a lot of lesser known World War II movies. This is his biggest claim to fame. Okay. Our screenplay writers are James Clavell, who before this wrote The Fly, Watusi, and Five Gates to Hell, and after this wrote King Rat to Serve with Love and the novel Shogun. Hmm. We also have W.R. Burnett, who wrote the screenplay. He wrote the novel Little Caesar, then wrote The Beast of the City, Scarface, High Sierra, Crash Dive, the novel The Asphalt Jungle, The Badlanders, and The Lawbreakers, and after this wrote Four for Texas, Ice Station Zebra, and Stiletto. So you have a novelist and an action gangster movie dude Mm -hmm. doing your screenplay. Okay, that's not a bad crew. I think the writing is really good because I feel like they set these guys up really well to be like, this is who we're looking at. Like, they get to it pretty quickly with like, okay, all of these guys who are coming into this particular prisoner of war camp are troublemakers. Like, this is what they've done. Like, it's almost like, you know, it's a prisoner of war camp, but it's, I feel like I've seen this type of scene so many times. These are the baddest of the bad guys. Um, it kind of reminds me of Con Air a little bit when they're like, this is the rap sheet for all of these guys who are getting put on this plane. Yep. Um, it's it's the same concept. It's, it's great, but it's just like this is what they do. Their their job, their responsibility is to try to escape. So by golly, that's what they're gonna do with their time. So they do that. I feel like they give each person a decent enough identity. I definitely, with the exception of James Garner, because I fucking love him, got a few of the dudes confused. Like Steve McQueen and James Garner, those are the only ones that I like. Definitely know who they are in this film. British people all look and sound the same. We well, know what you mean, <laughs> especially during this period of filmmaking. I mean, <laughs> they do. They they had a very specific look. So that was a little confusing, but like, you knew, like, these are the guys who are the tunneling guys. These are the guys who steal shit. Like, that's what these guys do. Like, this, that, that's their job in this mission. And that was great. That's fun. I do think, like, the actual execution of the plan 
went on too long. I think they could have montaged a little bit more because it did. It, I feel like it dragged. Like it was like, are we, are we, are we getting to like the actual escape part yet? It took a while to get there. Yeah, and we'll get there with our director. I, I believe mm-hmm. our director made some notes about how the the execution went down because I think for him and. Again, we see this with different eyes. Mm-hmm. I think the worry was if we don't show all of this, when we get later down the line, somebody's going to go, well, hang on a minute. How did you get there? Mm-hmm. Like he was, they were worried if we don't include the little details to tie the threads together, mm-hmm. somebody's going to complain about it and then say, well, it ruins the whole movie. Again, don't know that you have to do that, but there are, especially in the preparation sequences, there is a whole lot done specifically Mm -hmm. to service what happens in the tail end yeah and to keep the threads working together it's a movie that really required a focus on plot more than anything Mm -hmm. which again it comes to the detriment of the characters sometimes that's why most of our british guys wind up being a little flat you could have had more time to explore little quirks and things about some of the more minor characters Mm -hmm. instead of spending so much time on our plot we get a few of them. You know, we get Roger, played by Richard Attenborough. We get Donald Pleasance's character. There's there's definitely some British guys who are super character dudes. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them blend together mostly because we don't have a whole lot of time that we get to spend with them because it is just churn the story through. There's so much you have to tell. <laughs> yeah. And it's commendable that they manage to tell the whole story in a single movie. Mm-hmm. And it's gripping and entertaining and sticks pretty close to what happened. It's just that there's so much you have to push through that eventually you just go, well, maybe we should have just taken more than one movie to do this. So I don't know. It 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 really comes down to that. It's it's very good writing. I can't yeah. I can't fault them for how they push through all of it. It might be a bigger story that anybody could chew. I think that's fair. Like I said, there are a lot of uncredited writers. Our director noted that the screenplay went through six different writers and 11 drafts and was still in progress while filming. He said, quote, I'm not proposing that's a good way to make a picture, but it was the right way to make this one, unquote. Hmm. Which they did what they had to do. I will give it up. Our, our director is not the reason that this movie went into cost overruns and took forever to get done. Mm hmm. That distinguished honor goes to several other people. Oh, okay. But it is not the teams trying to write and direct this movie. They were on top of it. They were trying to make the best movie they could. Mm -hmm. This thing nearly got screwed into oblivion. No. But first, let's talk about the history of the actual Great Escape. Mm -hmm. So again, Paul Brickhill, our author of the novel, was moved to Stalag Luftdry, or 3, in Zagan, Poland. When he was transported to the camp, he did assist in the escape preparations for the actual escape from the camp. So this is very much based on a true story. The introduction to the movie even says, we've changed names to protect people, but for the most part, we're we're trying to tell you what happened. Brickhill, like Danny the Tunnel King, was also claustrophobic. He was slated for an early place in the line to escape, but when they found out about his claustrophobia, he was moved to the back of the line. And he is credited this for probably saving his life. Oh, okay. Because all of these guys got caught. I mean, that that is what we see in the movie is not completely true of how it happened, 
but mm-hmm. it is very true that they were caught and they were executed. At the time of the movie, a number of details about the escape were still classified. Okay. So they were working with mostly what Brickhill's knowledge was. The actual escape parameters were still under lock and key by an army intelligence. Mm-hmm. They did know that chocolate coffee and cigarettes were included in Red Cross packages and used by the officers to bribe Nazi guards. Mm-hmm. However, what we didn't know were that there were other materials used to facilitate escapes. Okay. They don't mention what it was, but Brickhill was not allowed to mention certain things in the book, and they weren't allowed to put it in the movie because it wasn't public knowledge. Okay. Also, it wasn't known until things got declassified that it wasn't just three tunnels. They had built a fourth tunnel named George. So Tom, Dick, Harry, and and George. George. They had four, not three tunnels. The X organization had already completed another mass escape from Stalag Luft 3. In June 1943, 26 prisoners escaped after being escorted by fake guards, aka prisoners disguised as Germans, to be taken to an offsite compound for delousing. They all got clear of the camp, but eventually got recaptured, and several of those people were involved in the Great Escape. Hmm. Two of those prisoners of war, Lauren Welch and Walter Morrison, attempted to steal an aircraft and were caught before starting the engine which gives us the inspiration for the plane escape of James Garner and Donald Pleasance's characters. Mm-hmm. So they're taking little bits and pieces from all the things that happened in and around this camp to make it a single narrative. Okay. The film does compress time a bit. The actual escape preparations involved 600 prisoners in the camp working for nearly a year. Though, if you actually judge by the timeline of what you're watching and, and you get the little clues, it does go about the course of a year, the preparations that they make. Of the 76 escapees, only three got away, just like we see in the movie, Mm -hmm. and 50 were killed in reprisal, but they were not killed as a mass killing. They were killed and executed in smaller groups. Mm. There were also 14 German soldiers who were executed after the war for their parts in the killings of American soldiers. It was war crimes. And one of the things that we see in this movie, and it's, it's not quite mentioned, one of the issues that they're facing is if you weren't in uniform mm-hmm. and you didn't have your insignia, we actually see it once with Steve McQueen. Yeah. You could be considered a spy or just, you know, somebody unauthorized to do something. And if you weren't considered a military officer, they could just execute you. No questions. However, if you could show that you were a military officer, now they had to follow the Geneva Convention. Mm-hmm. they're supposed to do more due diligence than that, but the Nazis were the Nazis, so if they got the chance, they were going to kill these guys. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it, I believe it was justified on their end was, well, they were spies. They weren't soldiers. And uh, that didn't work out so well after the war. Mm. The Tunnel Tom was discovered in August 1943 instead of July, as we see in the movie. It was actually just because they were rushing it too quickly. Also, the Americans were due to be moved around the summer to another camp, so they were trying to get the tunnel finished and get the Americans out before the transfer. Mm, Okay. Harry was completed over the following winter, and Dick was actually used as storage. They took contraband and dirt for Harry and moved it into Dick. The final escape was a rush job. Winter hadn't been kind to the wood that was actually structuring the tunnels, especially near the trapdoor, and prisoners were worried that they would get spotted 
They moved on the first moonless night, despite the weather being snowy and cold. But had they waited for a month or for conditions to improve, it was very likely that the tunnel would have collapsed or be noticed by the Germans because the dirt would fall in. So they got incredibly lucky to even get out of that tunnel. Yeah. Most importantly, they did meet their objective of diverting German resources. They actually doubled the number of guards at the camp when the Gestapo took over operations from the Luftwaffe. Okay. You know, that's the big overall arching thing of this is that even if they fail, Mm -hmm. the secondary mission that they can still achieve is diverting German resources Mm -hmm. to their shenanigans. Yeah, just wasting their time. Wasting their time, wasting their soldiers, wasting their operatives that gave soldiers still on the front lines a chance to go. Mm -hmm. And one of the things here, you know, the other thing that's maybe not quite as noticeable, because they're British, Mm -hmm. it's not quite as apparent that these are the same types of dudes that were also in Stalag 17. They're all aren't, they're all... Air Force and Navy guys, they're all pilots and they're all airmen. So they they are from the various air forces. The Luftwaffe runs the camp. So it's just interesting that there there is a real specific connection between those two movies. Yeah. They're just two different stories being told. Yeah. I think I mean I've talked about this before, but like sometimes watching multiple movies set in the same time period helps give me context for like how different things are happening and having watched Stalag, that was very much um, more of like the experience of what being in the prisoner camp was. So that gave me like a great like primer for what like the system was here. And it is interesting too, because, you know, with Stalag, it actually was grunts. Mm -hmm. Part of it was your normal everyday grunt. What happens to them when they get put in a POW camp? Mm-hmm. And what's the and the, what's the dynamic between those guys in dealing with that situation? This really was and and historically was we took all of our most annoying nuisances mm-hmm. and we put them in one basket. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, you can you can think about the wisdom of that. It's not necessarily the worst idea if you have a failsafe camp mm-hmm. and the type of failsafe camp you would need it. Like if you were doing this. In Japanese prisoner of war camps, it mm-hmm. would honestly make sense. It would make a lot more sense because you have a whole lot of places that you can isolate people near water, near harsh landscapes where there's no getting away. Yeah. The Germans didn't have that. Mm-mm. They really didn't. And so it's a foolhardy thing. They thought, well, if we just put all our resources here, we're going to stop all of them. But that didn't happen. <laughs> One of the big things that isn't true is that Americans were not part of the escape in real life. Like we mentioned, they were moved to another compound before the escape, Mm -hmm. which means the whole Steve McQueen and James Garner thing is, of course, a way to give us to American movie stars. I'm not mad about that. You know, well, it's James Garner, right? That's probably the biggest thing that they change is like, well, we need two actual Hollywood stars to throw in here. Mm hmm. The people who the characters were based on, in many circumstances, are honestly way more interesting (laughs) Mm -hmm. than even the characters we get. That's not a slight to the writing of the movie they're trying to consolidate, but there's some wild shit that these guys did. Yeah, I mean, just from the movie, it's wild shit. Roger Bartlett, 
played by Richard Attenborough, was based on Roger Bushel, the actual Mr. X. Bushel maintained absolute secrecy when dealing with the tunnels. He threatened to court-martial any officer that uttered the word tunnel aloud while they were in the camp. Mm-hmm. They referred to them only as Tom, Dick, or Harry. So it. he was not fucking around. Mm-hmm. Blythe the Forger was actually based on film director James Hill. Uh, he, of course, was not blind. He directed Born Free and 1971's Black Beauty. Oh, okay. He went on to be a, like a pretty well-known filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Hiltz was an amalgamation of several characters, and Hiltz is Steve McQueen's character. Mm-hmm. We first have Major Dave Jones, who was a flight commander during Doolittle's raid, who got shot down and captured after making it to Europe from that. Doolittle's raid was the uh, raid after Pearl Harbor. Colonel Jerry Sage was an OSS agent that was before the CIA who got captured in the North African desert. He donned a flight jacket and passed as a pilot because otherwise he would have been executed as a spy instead of a soldier. Mm Mm-hmm. So he, he was like, I have to think fast here. <laughs> and finally, squadron leader Eric Foster was an inspiration. He had escaped from German prisoner of war camps seven times during the war. Wow. McDonald, who was intelligence, was based on a guy named George Harsh, who was a friend of Wally Floody, the actual Tunnel King. And he was a very unique character. He was from the American South, and he joined the Royal Canadian Air Force as a tail gunner. I don't know how he migrated. However, in the 1920s, he committed murder and was sentenced to life in prison. At the time, he was studying medicine. And in prison, he performed an appendectomy on a dying prisoner, saving his life. And the governor of Georgia granted him a pardon. He was nevertheless plagued by guilt over the crime. He struggled with it for nearly all his life and also with the 15 years he spent in captivity. Wow. After some real struggles with that and a stroke, Wally Floody, the Tunnel King, they were very good friends. He moved him to Toronto to look after him Mm. in Canada. They eventually moved him to a veterans hospital where he finally passed away in 1980. Wow. Yeah. The actual story of these guys is even more interesting. Yeah. One character the book mentions but is not in this film is Wing Commander Harry Day, one of the masterminds. His story might be more impressive than literally anybody else that we talk about in this story. He was involved in at least four other major breakouts and two solo attempts at escaping. And after being one of the first out of the tunnel, he got caught in Stetten trying to get out of Germany into Switzerland. They actually spared him execution and sent him to Sachsenhausen, the concentration camp, with three others. Mm. Those officers dug again and escaped with a British officer, widely believed to be the only people to survive an escape attempt from Sachsenhausen. They were all recaptured, got held in solitary confinement, until near the end of the war they got exchanged as hostages. Day actually escaped, he reached Allied lines, and then went back and secured the safe release of the other three. (laughs) That's nuts. And made it out of the fucking war alive. And he doesn't even get mentioned! Yeah, because he's like his own movie. I know. (laughs) I would like to see that movie or read the book about that man, because that is nuts. At some point, I'm going to have to pick up Brick Hill's book, because this whole thing just sounds wildly cool. (laughs) The scene where Hiltz removes boards and Cavendish crashes through the bunks onto the floor was based on a real story from the book. 
During the drive to shore up on timber for the tunnels, Roger Bushel, the actual Roger Bartlett, donated all of his boards to set the example for everyone, and he convinced his bunkmate to do the same. They actually created a string system to keep the mattresses strung up and in place, but on the first attempt of him lying down, Roger crashed straight through the bed onto his bunkmate below him. Oops. Nice. The infamous Independence Day scene is thought to be based on British soldiers creating a distillery for Christmas at the camp. Hmm. So it wasn't the Americans, it was the Brits. Guy Griffiths, who worked on forgeries for the escape, and a pilot, he he created a fun illustration of the scene which survives to this day. The Royal Marines Museum in South Sea, England, exhibited that painting along with many others in an exhibit in 2010 of Guy Griffiths' work. That's very cool. Henley's mention of tally-ho to the other men on the train was the actual call that RAF pilots said when they spotted Germans in the sky. So it's a very common signal. Only three prisoners of war actually escaped, just like they did in the film. Norwegians Per Bergsland and Jens Muller made it by ship to Sweden after traveling by train. And Bram van der Stoke traveled across Europe to Spain, just like we see in the movie. Hmm. It just wasn't, you know... One Polish dude, one Brit, and one horribly accented Australian. Yeah. The last surviving participant in the escape, Dick Churchill, died in 2019 at the age of 99 years old. And the original camp in Sagan, Poland, can be visited. It is a ruin now. It's used for archaeological studies of the different stuff going on. But about 25 miles south, they have a replica of the camp built, and visitors can enter a model of the Harry Tunnel, mm-hmm. which is pretty awesome. The history is really good on this movie. It's conflated to get a dramatic story across, for sure. Mm-hmm. And the figures, some of them are amalgamations. Some of them are you know, just trying to base some things. But all of the basic plot points and the mechanics of how they did it, all of that is very accurate. Because the story itself is probably wilder than they could put on screen. Oh, yeah. But it's also, like, super complex. So what we got is boiled down, but nonetheless true to life. And all it does is is you go, look, if you want to know the real story, it's even more buck-fucking-wild than what you see in this. And required two or three times the amount of organization and work that we see in the movie. So, it's cool shit. That's awesome. All right, let's talk about our director. Mm-hmm. This man's name is John Sturgis. Okay. Before this, he directed Bad Day at Blackrock, Gunfight at the OK Corral, The Old Man in the Sea, and The Magnificent Seven. All right, it's cowboy guy. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. After this, he directed Ice Station Zebra, Marooned, Joe Kid, McHugh, and The Eagle Has Landed. Okay. What do we think of our directing of this movie? It's good. I think some scenes could be snappier. And I think that's to do with pacing and not solely on the script. It is not his fault. Again, I have read ahead. I've already done the study. However, there's so much that he is having to add in, put in, clarify, make clear. Some of that is studio fuckery, to be Mm -hmm. perfectly honest, knowing what we're getting into with the trivia. But it really boils down to that he felt a real responsibility to do justice to the story. Mm Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. I just think at times those decisions make for a movie that drags. Mm-hmm. It's, that's the trade-off is if you're going to do real justice to the story, unfortunately, there's going to be some things that are like, well, I don't need all of this. 
mm-hmm. but he wanted to give as many people involved in this their due as he could. And, you know, he's going up against the studio that was pretty hostile to him. They fucked with this movie hardcore. Early on, Sturgis got memos from United Artists requesting female roles. Mm. Mind you, this is an escape movie from a German prisoner of war camp in 1944. There were no women in the army on the front lines. No, there wouldn't have been. Come on. Yeah. At one point, they gave a note for the character of Ashley Pitt to be cradled in the lap of a beautiful woman with a low-cut blouse. And for publicity, they were going to cast the actress in a Miss Prison Camp contest held in Munich. What? Uh-huh. I, no. Sturgis put his foot completely down and refused. He said, this is a tribute to these men who mm-hmm. gave up everything to try to escape. Fuck you. So the only women that we see in the film are in the background mm-hmm. while McDonald and Bartlett walk through the town. And rightfully so. This is not Lawrence Total Sausage Fest. This one, Total Sausage Fest, but I get it. It's like Stalag 17. Why would we see women except for this one moment to make the point of, hey, there's Russian ladies across the way? Mm-hmm. Why would... What? <laughs> and then and then to have the Miss Prison Camp shit, which is just like, are you fucking joking me? It's so absurd also with the final film ua wanted to shorten it to increase daily ticket sales okay i get it Mm -hmm. but sturgis was livid because he's like i have given you a damn near perfect representation of this story Mm -hmm. i've cut every piece of fat i can out of it and i really do think he did like they cut everything they could possibly do without missing any little detail that would make some person go oh well this doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. so ua said fine if you want to keep it this length you're gonna pay us interest for the one million dollars you went over budget for the movie so sturgis and united arctic's executive harold marish who was helping produce went to pacific national bank to get a loan Mm -hmm. and the bank watched the film really loved it They wanted to see the movie before they agreed to finance it. Makes sense. You're going to give a loan out. I want to see if you got a hit. They loved it. But one thing they didn't understand was how the men got civilian clothes before their escape. As it so happened, that sequence with the tailor, along with several chunks of the preparations, were included in what United Artists wanted to cut from the movie. Mm. So the loan got secured on the condition that they kept those scenes in the film. And so Sturgis got what he wanted all along. Mm-hmm. I love that a bank exec did better than United fucking artists yep. <laughs> at recognizing, well, I just, how did they get to the train station and have all these, you know, German clothes with hats and, and whatnot? Yep. Well, if they would let me make the movie the way I want to make it, <laughs> you'd see that. Dear Lord. Ugh. There's a whole lot here that got fucked with. And, you know, I... I do think he probably pushes it a little too far. But again, those little details, especially when you're doing a heist, mm-hmm. if they don't land, it will throw the whole movie off. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things about a heist or an escape is the details need to match up. That's what an audience is tend- tends to look at. Like, we want to know, like, how do these dots connect? And when it's off, it kind of like, it, it becomes harder to uh, get back. 
The film was shot on location in Europe at a site near Munich built to replicate Stalag Luft dry. Okay, this is where we get into the cost overruns. They did it all for fucking real. Mm-hmm. Which makes for a great movie. But also, I- I'm not going to lie. Some of this felt a little Disney magic enough that you could have just done this in L.A. Yeah, you, you. so much of it is does feel like on a set that I don't think you need to. Like, you could have faked a lot of this. I don't know. There, There's two different ways to do it. One of the things I, I do think is, yes, they went over budget, but the flip side of it is that it wasn't the most sprawling shoot ever. It wasn't like they got into massive cost overruns and had to delay and had all this bullshit. It was really more that everybody went to Germany. They were there for a few months. We did everything. We got it done. Mm-hmm. So... The escape sequences were actually filmed in the Rhine country near the North Sea. The mm-hmm. motorcycle chase was filmed in Fusen near the Austrian border in the Alps. And that was one of the later s- sequences. Sturgis wanted additional locations. You know, he wanted to go to Spain and to Switzerland and get all these different places. But once they got to Fusen, he looked around and was like, we can make this work for all of it. We're already well over budget. So he was conscious that he didn't want to go over. <laughs> And he's like, I got to get the movie done. Let's just do it here. Mm -hmm. The interiors were completed at Bavaria Studio in Munich. So while they're filming all these exterior sequences, they're also got a studio they can go film in too, which works great. And Bavaria's backlot would have stood in for the camp itself, but it was too small. So Mm -hmm. instead, they filmed in a national forest next to the studio. They got permission from the government and... In order to film there, they bundled 400 trees that they dug up from the grounds and replanted the saplings elsewhere on the same land. They also reseeded about 2,000 pine trees that got damaged during the course of filming. So the one condition was, if you're going to do this, you have to replant anything that you damage. That's fair. Because it was a public forest. Hmm. It was public land. In the preparation and the building of the camp, heavy rain hit the area, despite it being fully in the middle of spring, and the locals said it was the worst weather they'd seen since the mid-1920s. This meant that filming started with interiors in the middle portion of the film first, so that the weather could pass. That was a big reason of what happened. They got hugely delayed just by weather. Okay. Sturgis and the production used Wally Floody, the actual Tunnel King, who got transferred with the Americans as one of their advisors. He served as a full-time consultant for almost a full year on the project. Actor Judd Taylor, who played Goff, the third American dude, the goofy guy, Mm -hmm. he said that the set was so authentic and realistic that a man walking his dog got extremely upset when he saw the camp in Mm -hmm. the middle of the forest. He was very relieved to know that it was a movie set. That's funny. I'm glad. I'm glad that there was a German who was like, what What does they do? The Nazis are back? Get out of here, Nazis. (laughs) Good guy. Yep. The tunnels were constructed of wood and skins filled with plaster and dirt, open on one side with a dolly, running the entire length of the set so that they could shoot those sequences of the prisoners being pulled across the tracks. Hmm. They also rented a full railroad engine and two condemned railroad cars, to film the train sequences at the end of the movie. They modified the cars to fit the camera equipment, and they shot on the single rail line from Munich to Hamburg. A railroad representative was on site to advise filmmakers when they needed to pull off the tracks because other trains were incoming. (laughs) They had a radio operator embedded with the crew 
to alert engineers of the traffic there, and they built out the schedules to allow the crew to plan filming around the actual train schedules. Hmm. Because Germany. Yeah. Say what you want. Efficiency is the Germans' masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) The German National Railroad Bureau also helped out with the train escape, the jump off of the train. Platforms were fitted on a passenger car to allow arc lamps for the lighting to light the interiors of the train. (laughs) On a single flat car, a Chapman crane got set up that it could swing over the passenger car to film the jump from the train, and stuntmen dressed as Garner and Pleasance filmed the sequence. Hmm. However, right before they were supposed to jump, the crew got a warning just in the nick of time that the crane was going to slam into a railroad pole. Mm. And they pulled it back just in time before it did. Okay. That would have been bad. Oh, yeah. I do think this is a movie that you could have just Hollywood magicked it up a little bit. However, it's kind of cool to know that they were like, no, we're going to go to these places. So it can be what it was like. And I got especially the fucking chases are mm-hmm. iconic. I mean, all that all that drama after the tunnel chase, plus like the tunnel sequences where they're rolling through on the rails and all of that stuff. Once you get into that last third of the movie, mm-hmm. it's action packed and it's good action. Yeah. The prep sequences are are really the stretching out part. And I think it's just Sturgis really was adamant about trying to do the story as much justice as he possibly could. Yeah. I admire that. I just don't always think it's the right choice for this movie. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, those scenes work really well because they are very iconic, but some of it just goes on for too long. I feel like some like with some of like the the bike chases, it's just like, okay, like this is just fill time. Oh, uh, you're not going to be shocked about why that happened. Not when I get into our cast. Yeah, let me guess. The actor wanted to showcase their motorcycle skills. We start with a gentleman by the name of Steve McQueen as Mm -hmm. Hiltz, the Cooler King. The Cooler King. I love their nicknames. It's so good. Because he's the guy who always got sent to the cooler. That was his other room. Before this, he did a lot of television. He was in The Blob, The St. Louis Bank Robbery, The Magnificent Seven, and Hell is for Heroes. After this, Love with the Proper Stranger, The Cincinnati Kid, The Sand Pebbles, The Thomas Crown Affair, Bullet, Le Mans, The Getaway, Papillon, The Towering Inferno, An Enemy of the People, and The Hunter. What do we think of Steve McQueen in this movie? I mean, he's great. He's Poor man's Paul Newman. Yes. Don't get me wrong, Steve McQueen, also cool. Very cool dude. He he is def <laughs> Hmm. He has just a different vibe than Paul Newman. He's younger. He is younger. But there's something effortless about Paul Newman. And this guy's, I think, just a little bit edgier. Paul Newman was an actor actor mm-hmm. for sure. Cause he started off in, you know, Brando was the Lee Strasberg guy, the super method dude. Mm-hmm. Newman was the Meisner guy. Okay. So he came up in the same acting generation as the Brandos and that whole crew, but he was off to the side with Sanford Meisner doing that. We're going to get at the core of how natural and real we can make acting Mm -hmm. by just reacting. And so Newman is very much like an effervescent presence. That's why his charm is so good whenever he's acting, whether he's being dramatic or absolutely comic. Steve McQueen 
was just like the epitome of cool. Yeah. Like that's all he did. And and he's a one note kind of actor. He's not he's a movie star, not an actor. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't hurt the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Like it really could. You could stunt because it's it's a bit of a stunt cast at this point, putting a very big movie star in this role that really doesn't have a huge tie to the story itself. Sure. Because at the end of the day, you had to bank this movie on something. So put it in the hands of this guy. But the way they weave his story in plays to his strengths. Yes. I mean, yeah, you could definitely stunt cast this film a lot. But this is a role that's that's okay for. I just, he, they cast him in the perfect role for what his talents were. Yeah. By making him the dude who's going to be a bit distant, going to do his own thing. He's cooler than everybody else. And then, you know, he establishes this relationship with this one dude. And when the Germans just absolutely wreck him, he's finally like, all right, whatever you need. I'm in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sir, let me know the exact information you need. I'm going out tonight. Right. Open up, Harry. We dig. Around the clock. Because that's the first half of the movie is, how do we get Hiltz to finally get on board? Because Hiltz is one of the most talented escape artists in the camp. Yep. And he also has no fear. Unlike everybody else who's like, you know, we've got to meticulously plan this. And we see immediately, he's like, now it's just going to shovel underneath and then we're going to crawl out and get out. There's Mm -hmm. a gap right there. Yep. When are you going to do it? I'm going to do it tonight. Y'all want to (laughs) come? He does not give a shit. (laughs) So, like, that's what makes him such a valuable asset because he's seeing things, like, five times faster than they are Mm -hmm. because they're so dedicated to, like, absolute perfect planning. (laughs) Now, McQueen, McQueen was a bit difficult to work with. Oh, was he a bit of a diva? Yeah. No. Look, we talked about Peter O'Toole, who was not a diva. He was just dealing with the most existential crisis of acting he'd ever dealt with in his life and already had a drinking problem mm-hmm. steve mcqueen was just a pain in the ass i like it Attenborough said it was one of his toughest challenges ever to work with steve mcqueen mm-hmm. mcqueen was not combative okay he was passive aggressive uh, if things weren't exactly how he wanted them or thought they should be he pounced i was like that's my excuse he started making life difficult he rarely mingled on set. He stayed in a chalet he rented for him and his family. I don't mind that. I don't. Mm-hmm. You got a family. We're going to stay off-site. I'm going to spend time with my family. But he also traveled to set every day in a chauffeur-driven limousine? That... I don't know, dude. Seems not like, like a not great idea. It's just rude. Case in point for McQueen here. Upon seeing the rushes, McQueen got pissed about how his role was too minor and underdeveloped. <sighs> Again, this is an ensemble movie. Mm-hmm. He is there to be the face and to be the money guy. Yeah. He's going to get top billing. Yeah. But it's about the group, not his character. Okay, I have a question. Okay. I don't have the answer for this yet. Had Ocean's Eleven come out yet? Yes. Okay. So I have not seen the original Ocean's Eleven, but that is a film filled with like top billing guys. And it's not about just one guy. It's a- yeah, but they were all best friends because they were all the rap. Pack. Yeah, I know, but like that's kind of the vibe. This there's a vibe here that that's what it's going for. 
this dude believed he was supposed to be the star of this movie and he's not Mm -hmm. that's the thing here (laughs) like oceans 11 they didn't care because they were all best friends oceans 11 from 1960 is the equivalent of grown-ups today okay a bunch of dudes going to vegas making a movie having a great time that's what oceans 11 was (laughs) i like it (laughs) this is i'm the movie star why am i not the star of this movie He was particularly upset about the fact that he disappears from the film for about 30 minutes in the middle. And that is true. <laughs> I mean, fair, but... They put him in the cooler, and then they do all the prep. So he demanded rewrites. Now, Sturgis, being diplomatic, actually conceded and recognized, okay, it is, it is probably an issue that one of these main guys is actually gone for so long. Okay. We could probably do with peppering him back into the scenes, right? Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be the worst idea. You've got this main character, and you're going to disappear him for about the second third of the movie and then bring him back somehow. <laughs> it's a little much. But because of all the rain, because they were beyond schedule, he just could not get back. He could not reschedule and rewrite the script at that point. Mm-hmm. There's no logistical way to do this. Like, I don't disagree with you, but we're stuck here. McQueen still bitched about it. Of course he did. So then, James Garner and James Coburn, mm-hmm. the other two American movie stars, start going to him to discuss his issues. Garner discovered pretty quickly that McQueen wanted to be the hero of the movie, but he didn't want to go against the feel of the character. So he liked the character as written on the page, mm-hmm. but he wanted to be the star. Okay. And apparently he was also not happy about how calm Hiltz was in the cooler. Come on, he's the cooler king. Yeah. Or the bit with the baseball mitt and the ball, which, what the fuck, dude? It's iconic. Yeah. Him throwing that baseball against the wall is so cool. At that point, Sturgis got so fed up, he considered writing McQueen out of the movie entirely. Don't blame him at all. Because at this point, he's like, we're already over budget. He's pissed about this. I don't know what we're going to do. I might as well just get rid of him because we don't need the character. Yeah. But United Artists demanded McQueen be kept in because he was paramount to the film's financial success. Mm -hmm. So they fronted the money to hire another writer, Ivan J. Moffat, to come in and deal with McQueen's demands to the script. And McQueen finally returned to work now that he had some character rewrites. Okay. Okay. That's just one story. (laughs) God. Again, Paul Newman would never. Paul Newman would just be like, you want me to do this? Cool. I'm on it. All right. I'll do it. I got to work. Oh, I get 30 minutes off in the middle of the movie. Cool. Cool. I still get paid the fuck ton of money. Cool. I get to hang out in Germany. Sweet. (laughs) They're in Munich. I know. They're in a major German city. Go fucking have fun, you dipshit. Mm -hmm. One little fun note. The gold medallion that McQueen wears around his neck throughout the film was a gift from his wife. Mm -hmm. That's kind of cool. And who could have been better? An actor that we talk about a lot and we've just never seen any of his shit. Kirk Douglas. Oh, okay. This would have been in a much earlier iteration of the story, I think. Mm -hmm. Because by 63, Kirk Douglas is probably too old for this. Yeah. You get him in the early 50s. I think we're good. All right. Now, Diana, mm-hmm. are you ready? Are you ready to talk about one of your favorite people ever? Have we ever talked about him on this before? No, we have talked about him before. It's James Garner playing Hendley 
the scrounger. Mm-hmm. Before this, he was Maverick on television, was in Sayonara, Up Periscope, The Children's Hour, and Boys Night Out. After this, the Americanization of Emily, Grand Prix, Support Your Local Sheriff, Marlowe, A Man Called Sledge, Support Your Local Gunfighter, The Rockford Files on TV, Victor Victoria, Sunset, The Distinguished Gentleman, Fire in the Sky, Maverick from 1994, God the Devil and Bob on TV, Space Cowboys, Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, The Notebook, and Eight Simple Rules. Mm-hmm. What do we think of James Garner in this movie? I love him. He's so good. He's the best. First of all, that fucking turtleneck Woo. is adorable. Him with the turtleneck and the pipe. Yep. I mean, he looks a little bit like the captain from Gilligan's Island. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. He looks like a weird sea captain at times, but he's so fucking charming. Mm-hmm. Look, Garner didn't have to look for inspiration for the character because during the Korean War, he was his unit's self-described scrounger. Mm-hmm. He was this guy in the war. I love that. Which, it's James Garner. Why wouldn't he be? Mm-hmm. He's just so charming. I mean, he's adorable to watch. And yes, I love him. He's scheming every German in the camp. Love it. He's stealing everything from everyone. That whole bit with Werner is, it's classic James Garner. Mm-hmm. But it, the, the other cool part about it is, is that he totally fits in with the rest of the crew. Yes. It's not like he's distracting from anything going on. Mm -hmm. You need this guy if you're going to escape a fucking prisoner of war camp. Yeah. And so he he just fits in along with them. And then his whole relationship with Blythe the Forger Mm -hmm. is just him and Donald Pleasance is the most fun, odd couple relationship. It is very funny. You're like, how are these two going to get along together? Mm hmm. They're roomies? And yet he's just like, I love this dude. And I'm going to protect him. I'm getting him out of here. Yeah. It's it's very good. Uh, he's just James Garner. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Garner was very taken with McQueen's rebellious nature. Okay. Garner, like McQueen, took up car racing after meeting him on this. And he began wearing turtlenecks because he really liked McQueen's style. Okay. He also lobbied Sturgis for more dynamics for his role, just like McQueen did. And McQueen, being the little diva that he was, then got paranoid that Sturgis was favoring Garner and began pouting and refusing to shoot scenes. A bunch of little bitches. (laughs) McQueen's agent had to fly out twice to Germany to get him to settle down, and this is when his petulance got him his beloved motorcycle scenes. Oh, Jesus. There was no motorcycle escape as part of the Great Escape. That never fucking happened. Of course not. This was all because Steve McQueen wanted to ride around on motorcycles on camera. You ever want to hear some wild shit? Go t- go listen to how the film Le Mans was made mm-hmm. and how like he wanted to race all those cars mm-hmm. because like he was the de facto director of that movie, but also nearly got himself killed because those cars were notoriously unsafe. Mm-hmm. Who could have been better for this role? Burt Lancaster. Again, much older. And also Burt Lancaster... He's a very good actor, but not nearly as fucking charming as James fucking Garner. No. Gimme Garner every day. Yes. Perhaps. Always. He's my favorite cowboy. We have to do a Western series just so we can watch him be a cowboy a lot. Yes, I know. I've never seen Support Your Local Sheriff the whole way through. We know this. Well, not everybody knows him. Now we need to talk about Sir Richard Attenborough as Bartlett or Big X. 
He was in Dr. Doolittle. He directed Gandhi. And of course, he was in Jurassic Park. What do we think of Richard Attenborough in this movie? He's okay. He's okay. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't get anything extra special from him this time. So, like, it, it's fine. He's so fucking intense in this movie. Are you kidding me? I don't know. I guess I just... I think I was too distracted by James Garner and Donald Pleasance. Because, okay, Donald Pleasance is very distracting in this film. Well, yeah, because partly because he's Donald Pleasance and his presence is always just so wildly... It's weird. ...imbalancing. Yes. Just because he's he, he's so captivating as an actor. <laughs> yes, <yeah>. he's fabulous. <laughs> yes, Richard Attenborough is the epitome of dumpy British white dude who can blend into the background. Mm-hmm. However... His intensity here is like off the charts to me. Mm-hmm. Bartlett is like ruthlessly dedicated. That whole conversation he has when he first gets there with Ramsey, the British officer dude, mm-hmm. it's like, have you thought about what it'll cost you? And he's like, I'm going to murder all of them. Mm-hmm. He carries that the whole way through. Yeah. That to me is like the signature part of his performance to me. We don't always get that because the movie is not calling for it. And sometimes, you know, he's trying to be a little more gentle and a little more sly. Mm-hmm. But in those moments where his intensity is there, it's so pronounced. And it's wild because it's like, that's not who Richard Attenborough has been in movies. Mm-hmm. So I, I really like him mostly because it's not something you see him do a lot in his in his performing. <laughs> and it's just like. When he gets the fire in his eyes, you're like, oh, shit, this guy, this guy's so dedicated, he's dangerous. Mm-hmm. He also has to carry so much of the plot. He does. Which, again, I think is why he blends into the background a lot, because he's the one carrying all of the stuff from the plan through the movie. Mm. Okay. It's a, it's a huge task, and he's Richard Attenborough. He kind of blends into the background. Go watch Planet Earth, and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. He served as an Air Force gunner and photographer for three years during the war. His cohort, Roger Bushel, was a Spitfire pilot in 92 Squadron early in the war. So they were both involved in the Air Force. Who could have been better? Richard Harris. Mm. He dropped out when the film This Sporting Life ran behind schedule, and he was not pleased with the diminished role of Bartlett because of script changes, probably because of our dude Steve McQueen. Mm So he uh, he had to drop out. Attenborough actually got cast on very short notice. Oh. Um, I think it was a matter of weeks that he had to be like, oh, shit, I got to go do this. Funny story. Attenborough took a long time off from acting to go direct. And of course, he did Gandhi and stuff. And mm-hmm. the last film role he came back for was Jurassic Park. Mm, yes. So after that, at one point, he was interviewed and asked, what role would you come back to act in? And he said, well, if I got asked. I would go play Aldous Dumbledore to replace Richard Harris one more time. He did not get asked to do that role, of course, but that was his slightly cheeky but fun little nod to his fellow acting cohort. Also, he would have been a great Dumbledore. Yeah, Attenborough would have been fantastic. He would have. We then have Charles Bronson playing Danny the Tunnel King. And we mentioned him in The Dirty Dozen, but this is actually one of his real early starring roles. Mm. What do we think of Charles Bronson in this movie? He's great. He's great, and it's a little bit of a different mood from him. Mm-hmm. Because this is before he's like really action star guy. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's the claustrophobia thing that really brings it home for him. 
Yeah. Danny and I'll go later. We'll take another place. Danny, tell me what this is and tell me quickly. This tunnel is mine as much as anybody. I dug it. I built it. I was buried many times. I go when I want. Let me out. Let me out. Because it could be such a laughable moment, right? It could be such a, oh, the irony. The dude who digs the tunnels is claustrophobic. But he acts his ass off on it. Like, he really dives into that feeling. And because of that, he's not the biggest role. But he does such a good job with that that that's part of why this movie got him into movie stardom. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It gave him a huge boost. He's really good and really fascinating. And I do love the fact that he was Polish. Yes. And so he's using his accent and a lot of his experience to draw from to play the character. Mm -hmm. Bronson also brought a different amount of expertise and experience for this because before acting, he was a coal miner. Mm, Okay. And he actually provided advice on set to Sturgis on how to move the dirt around for it to actually work the way you would dig a tunnel. And... Because of his time working in such enclosed spaces, he also suffered from claustrophobia. Mm, okay. So this really rang close to home for him. It was It's kind of one of those just a perfect casting moment. Mm. Yet he also nails it out of the park. And it the, the level of vulnerability that you get from Charles Bronson is something you don't see a whole lot in the rest of his career. <laughs> He's always Mr. Tough Guy. <laughs> Finally, we have Donald Pleasance playing Blythe the Forger. We have talked about him numerous times. He was Blofeld in You Only Live Twice. He's Dr. Loomis from Halloween. And he was the president in Escape from New York. Oh, yeah, he is. I forgot he was in that one. What do we think of Donald Pleasance in this movie? He's a little unnerving. Well, he's Donald Pleasance. He's always unnerving. Yeah. He's just so guileless. He's innocent and naive in such this pure way until he starts forging. Mm Mm-hmm. I love the fact that they're just like, who is this weird dude? Why is he so creepy? Because we watched Stalag, you're like, oh no, is he a German informer? <laughs> yeah, there was I, I won't I won't lie, that did make me nervous. I couldn't remember if there was a subplot where they thought he might be. Mm-hmm. But then the second he gets the forgeries, you're like, oh, okay. This guy knows exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. It's just what he's good at. <laughs> yeah. And then everything else is he's he is the most mild-mannered British dude who just happens to be so top-notch at cutting apart pictures and getting things organized just right to make the papers look accurate. Yeah. And again, what then really helps it is the relationship with Hendley. And you see that it's like, here's this odd couple duo, and you learn that Blythe isn't a bad guy. He's just kind of weird hmm. yeah and then and then the whole blind subplot which is just like you are so crushed yeah when roger comes in and that whole sequence and you're like oh no yeah that that one hurt a blind man is an unnecessary hazard not only to himself but to the whole plan and must therefore be eliminated from the operation Colin's not a blind man as long as he's with me. And he's going with me. It's all right with you, Colin? Yes. Quiet. It hurt, but it it was done really well. 
And Roger's absolutely right. Like Roger's ruthless and it sucks because he's he's not a great guy. He's absolutely bound to the mission and refuses to compromise. And like this whole thing of like, he's a liability. Mm -hmm. No one wants to get him out of here more than any of us, but he's a liability. He's going to get somebody killed. And that's when Henley finally goes, okay, it'll be me then. I'll deal with it. I'll take that bullet. Yeah. It's fascinating. Pleasance, again, can be so unnerving, but because then that relationship gets established mm-hmm. and they have this rapport, it turns into something more sweet in a way. Yeah. Some of the weird times that I will actually call a Donald Pleasance character actually kind of sweet and lovable. <laughs> yeah. He had actually served as an air crewman in the Royal Air Force and his plane was shot down. He was taken as a prisoner of war and was tortured by the Germans. Mm. So when he got to set, he very kindly offered his advice to the director. And the director politely asked him to keep his, quote, opinions to himself. When another actor then told Sturgis, hey, Donald Pleasance was imprisoned in an actual German prisoner of war camp. Sturgis immediately turned right back around to him and went, hey, can you help us out? (laughs) He was like, I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. And Pleasance offered technical advice and input throughout the entire filming process Mm -hmm. because he'd he'd been in an actual camp. He knew what all of that was like. He helped with all sorts of stuff. So I I do wonder if there's a little bit of his own trauma from dealing with that in his character, Hmm. knowing that seeing him, you're like some of that detachment and hesitancy in his character, I think reads as him having to confront some of that again. Yeah. Which plays really well for the really quiet dude. And that is going to be it for our main cast. We are going to move now to our pawns. Our pawns. Random people of note. <laughs> we have James Donald playing Ramsey, the SBO or senior British officer. We saw him in Bridge on the River Kwai. He was the British colonel who was kind of just observing everything. And he's the one who gets the line madness at the end of the movie. Mm, nice. We have James Coburn playing Sedgwick, the manufacturer, with his horrible Australian accent. I love me some James Coburn. Yes. But this is bad. Yeah, it's, it sticks out so badly. He is supposed to be Australian. Mm-mm. Like, he didn't even barely hit British. And they knew. Everybody on set was like, oh, he does not have an accent at all we can he cannot pull that off Mm -mm. so the movie actually tried to fudge it by making one little reference Mm -hmm. roger exasperated when he doesn't have the air pump ready goes bluey where the hell is the air pump bluey was an australian slang term for someone with red hair fun bit australian slang's weird it's very funny yeah however nobody in america who is watching this movie understands that reference nope so instead everybody just credited sedgwick with the first name louie jeez he's fine but i just i wish they had just been like okay make him american make him another american somehow i don't care Mm -hmm. (laughs) david mccallum playing ashley pitt dispersal uh he was one of the sidekicks for robert vaughn in the man from uncle Mm. gordon jackson playing mcdonald intelligence He was the lead in the 70s precursor to Downton Abbey, Upstairs, Downstairs. Hmm. And finally, Nigel Stock playing Cavendish the Surveyor. He was a longtime British actor who appeared opposite Peter Cushing as Sherlock Holmes. Hmm, Okay. Awards. Awards. 
This was nominated for exactly one Academy Award. Oh, okay. Best editing. Mm-hmm. It did not win. Okay. Nothing about this movie is like Oscar worthy. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's super fun. It's a fun ride. It's a good flick. It's not an Oscar contender. <laughs> no. No, it's just not. No. All right, trivia. Trivia. In between shots or during breaks, the entire cast and crew from stars down to production assistants were recruited to knot thin strings of rubber and knot them around giant strings of rubber that stretched really, really long. The end result of that was all of the coils and fences of barbed wire used in the film. It was all rubber. Oh, okay. During the handing out of drinks on the 4th of July, McQueen gets visibly thrown off when Judd Taylor comes in and shouts, No taxation without representation. McQueen looks and mouths, What? at Goff. And it wasn't clear if Sturgis just signaled off screen, just keep going, or if it was an intentional line, but it appears to be an ad lib line from Judd Taylor. (laughs) At the German airfield, the planes parked are North American AT-6 Texan trainer planes. Now, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for Germany and the war, except Mm -hmm. that there is a possibility that these were authentic. The Germans did use AT-6 Texans as advanced trainers, confiscating them from the French in 1940. And the plane that we actually see flown is an authentic German plane, a Bucher BU-181 Bestmann. Mm -hmm. Sturgis's assistant, Robert E. Relier, was an amateur pilot and offered to fly the Bestmann for their escape. During one shot, he had to simulate the plane losing power and descending over a line of trees. Relier said a farmer in the field saw the Nazi insignia on the plane flying low over his head, and the farmer threw his rake at the plane. Mm. Nobody likes Nazis. Come on. No. In another shot, Relier, having to land the plane in a field owned by a German aviation official, got arrested. And finally, during the crash shot, he knocked himself unconscious and had to be taken to the hospital where he suffered from a sharp pain in his neck. Never, ever offer yourself up for dangerous plane stunts if you are an amateur pilot. Unless you're Tom Cruise. Even then, guys. Not a good idea. You are an assistant to the director. You are not a stunt pilot. Stop it. While filming in Germany, police set up a speed trap near the set and several cast and crew got caught. Steve McQueen, a longtime racer and speedster, was flagged down, and the chief of police told him, Herr McQueen, we have caught several of your comrades today, but you have won the prize. McQueen got arrested and briefly jailed before being allowed to return to the set. Uh, boys in their cars. Steve McQueen attempted the motorcycle fence jump himself, but crashed. This led to his friend Bud Eakins doing the jump. Hmm. His job up until this point was managing an L.A. motorcycle shop for Triumph, whose bikes were used for the chase. He actually doubled for McQueen in the car chase classic Bullet and did a lot of motorcycle riding on chips. Mm. Oh, that's fun. However, Sturgis did allow McQueen to ride a lot of the sequences and also allowed him to dress up as one of the pursuing German soldiers (laughs) to ride on those motorcycles so in fact in some of the scenes steve mcqueen is literally chasing himself that's fun i like that that's fun in addition to donald pleasance and several other actors german actors hannes messimer the commandant till kive frick 
and Hans Reiser, Herr Kuhn, were all prisoners of war themselves. Mm. Messimer was in a Russian camp and Kiva and Reiser were in American camps. Messimer escaped from the Soviet camp and walked several hundred miles to the German border. Kive served as a prisoner of war in Arizona, and he attempted to escape 17 different times. All of the German actors for the film were recruited out of Munich. Okay. During filming, Charles Bronson was very close with David McCallum, the actor who played Ashley Pitt, and his wife, Jill Ireland. Hmm. Ireland, who was staying nearby on set, suffered a miscarriage. And while tending to her, at one point, McCallum had to leave set for two days. Bronson, being a really good friend, offered to help her out and stay with her and take care for that time. And in those two days, the two fell madly and deeply in love. Oh, no. Sturgis was totally terrified. He was not excited about two main actors feuding over a woman and was like, I'm not having this on my set. You're not doing this. You need to deal with this later. However. McCallum returned and was remarkably calm and collected about the whole situation. In an interview, he said, quote, I never hated him. Charlie was always a good friend. I find that when problems come along, worrying about them and getting anxious and negative is quite unnecessary. You can solve them, usually amicably. And that's what happened. And despite having three children with the actress, and he said it wasn't, it wasn't easy, it was tough, but we worked it out and there were no lingering tensions while they filmed. Well, good for them. That's awesome. What a wild, ultimately decent story. I mean, on, like, honestly, good for them. They, I know. Like, they put shit aside that didn't need to be dealt with until it needed to be dealt with. That's awesome. An urban legend persists that a young Harrison Ford is an uncredited extra in this movie. Mm-hmm. This will be our final piece of trivia. This would be four years before his first official credit. The scene in question is when Bartlett and McDonald are sitting next to a uniformed German officers and are asked for passes by the Gestapo. Mm -hmm. They cut to a different angle and there's a Nazi youth in a brown shirt, tie, and swastika armband. The actor does appear to resemble Ford, who would have been about 19 or 20 at the time of filming. However, what makes this very much an urban legend is one, filming was done completely in southern Germany, so... Almost anyone hired for extras were German actors. Mm-hmm. The main cast was brought over, but they weren't hiring extras from America to come over. That wasn't going to be a thing. Secondly, the person that we see on film has a very pronounced dimpled chin, which Harrison Ford does not have. So he might be a doppelganger. Mm. Mm. And that leads us to ratings. Ratings? For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this one, it's got to be the tunnel trolley carts, right? I like that. Yes. Right? Come on. It's my movie. I've seen it first. Solid four. Solid four. Okay. It's just, it's a really good movie. It's not the greatest thing. It's not reinventing anything, but it's a touchstone for so many prison break and heist movies after it. And remarkably... It does a really good job of staying true to the story. Mm-hmm. There's things that they had to fix and change because they've got to compress the storyline enough to at least get it to a watchable length. Yeah. The real story's even crazier. <laughs> you know, where it suffers is that it's trying to tell so much plot and doesn't give us enough time with the characters. You know, Heat did a much better balance of this for me of like, you got to explore all these characters and you got a really great plot in the middle of it too. And this just doesn't have that balance, but it's still such a fun movie to watch. 
Mm-hmm. And it's just a really cool story that you can reliably go, yeah, that really happened. So I'm going to give it a four. Four trolley cards. I think that feels right. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I mean, it's it's the film that set the tone for so many more films to come after it. The performances are good. I, I, I needed some tightening up with the script and some of the sequences because, you know, we didn't need that much motorcycle. But yeah, it was st- it was still a lot of fun. So I would watch it again. Yeah, it's a four. It's a four. Solid movie. Still really mm-hmm. watchable. Still really fun. Worth it. All right. Finally, Diana, mm-hmm. we're not watching a war movie next week. What? However, it might be more violent than any war. Oh. Because we are going to watch Armando Iannucci's The Death of Stalin. Oh. A movie I have been wanting to see for so long. Oh, yeah. I remember. I vaguely remember when this one was coming out. And we were like, oh, that looks fun. It it just looked like so much fun. And having learned a little bit more and more about, like, Soviet history Mm -hmm. and especially the post-Lenin years of Soviet history, Mm -hmm. the fun part's going to be figuring out if this movie even gets close to how bonkers real life was because it was fucking wild. Mm. So, um, I don't know. I'm prepared to uh, enjoy watching some very silly people be very silly while pretending to be Russian. Yeah, that sounds like fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm into it. All right. Well, until next time. Have a good movie.